best to get this job that I so crave. Welcome to a contender match, which is going to get you to Mayhem the Multiplex 6. Uh, my name is Tim. I'm here to host this contender match. Um, very excited for this one. Uh, this is the finals of our tournament. We've been running through most of the beginning of the year. Um, and we've got uh, the number three seed, Cameron Holtzman, going up against the number five seed, Caleb Boatman. Um going to be interesting i haven't been here for the last match for both of these players um that got them to this place i got to see them from behind the scenes um hoof uh but nonetheless they're here and uh they're they're playing for a shot at the title um you're gonna see either holtzman or boatman going up against cody um at mayhem at the multiplex six which is uh a pretty tall order, and I'm excited because I think either of those fights is going to be good, and I think this fight today is going to be pretty interesting. Um, and it, it, when you look at, like, Boatman versus Coho, friends playing against each other, they throw all that shit out the window. So now what's going to happen when, <laughs> when it's uh, Boatman versus Holtzman? Looking forward to it. So, uh, Brian, um, bless you. Uh, you're here for another one of these. Uh, why are you so sweet to me? Um, I'm just a masochist, apparently. Um, yeah, this, this one I expect actually to be a lot like the last one, except I'm hoping that everyone has reviewed their picks and they know what they're, what they're arguing, um, so we don't have a, have any discussions and breaks and figuring all that stuff out. No, but seriously, uh, this will be another good one. I mean, this is this is to see who goes on for a title match, so obviously we're getting to the best of the best here. Yeah, and Mark, also, why are you so sweet to me? Um, you know... I like I won't really answer that question. I'm just gonna say I'm very glad that you're here. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I'm happy to be back. Uh, but uh, let's get into it. We're gonna start with uh, some opening interviews a little bit, starting with uh, the uh, lower seated player, Caleb Bowman. <laughs> Caleb, um, you don't want to be here. Why are you here? Uh, because you said Boatman, I need you to. I oh, I can't take you out of the fan zone tournament. So could you please do me a favor and play this tournament? And then I kept winning because I did try in the actual matches because I'm not good at not trying. That's fair. But like, yeah, I, I will say, I think there's a big difference between me and Coho and me and Holtzman. I think, I think sometimes y'all, especially I'm going to call it out. Especially Phoenix Club members, y'all homogenize us a little bit. There's when Coho's involved and Coho's not involved. There's a big difference in the vibe in the room. I'm part of the video store, but uh, I wasn't talking about you. Brian's the one who said the thing. Isn't Brian not anyway? Uh, okay, <laughs> he would used to be a part of that. He's still in those chats. I know Andrew Parsons. Oh, yeah. I ran from those as fast as I could. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Uh we're gonna bring in the higher seed to play the number three seed, Cameron Holtzman. Cameron, welcome to the match. Uh you had to play uh former champ. Uh, I, I actually I buried the lead a little bit. Boltman did do a lot of pretty good things to get here. He played Brooklyn Vale and won in a 3-0 knockout. Then he played um he went up against Rue after that, who's played for a title. He played 
against Kohu, who played for a title. So Boatman did do some great things to get here. And Cameron, you did as well. The number three seed, you went up against Barr, who is a sneaky underrated player in debate, um, does not have a record that I think kind of represents. He took you to the to the limit, three to two. And then um, after that, you went up against Nazario. Again, someone who's challenged for a title, took you to the limits, three to two. And in the last match, Jacoby, former champion of this league, three to two. So you've had a lot of close calls, but also fantastic wins. Nonetheless, you're going up against Boatman. How do you think this is going to go? Now, gentlemen of the jury, my, my esteemed opponent would like me, would like you to believe that he uh, tries really hard and is incapable of being bad at this. But I'll remind you that in his last match, he argued a thing he did not pick foolishly and won off of the mistakes of his opponent. Uh, I am just a humble country lawyer reminding you of these facts. Uh, no, no. hearsay <laughs> argumentative no, seriousness. no yeah like you said um, Boatman has had a very strong run coming here again like as much as I can make fun of him for that last match he also won a match where he was arguing something he shouldn't have been arguing and wasn't necessarily prepared for um, which is terrifying um, but at the same time uh, like yeah he has had dominant wins every win in this tournament that i've had has been in the speed round um but i think like all of all of my rounds have been close i've gone up against top competitors boatman is someone who yeah like like was pointed out the two of us like don't want to murder each other like a lot of different people in our in our associated group do um but i'm i'm excited to see how this goes uh it's sure to be a fun one all right well, then let's get into it. Here's how this is going to work. Uh, the players drafted categories. We gave them questions based off those categories, and then they are going to debate them tonight before our very souls. So uh, we are going to give them each a minute to open their argument for the question. They are then going to get a five-minute free form and a one-minute closing at the end of the debate. Mark, Brian, and I will write on our handy-dandy boards who we think won that debate. Two out of three votes wins you a point, and the first person to three points wins the match. If we need to, uh, we will go to a um, bonus round if we're tied up two to two after the um, the four main round questions. And uh, we'll get to the rules of that when we get there, if we need to. So, uh, players, any questions as we get into the main debate? Nah. Is Boltzmann supposed to be John Goodman from B Movie? That's, uh, I think, I'm, what I was. I'm doing. just a simple country lawyer. I, I'm Scott Harvey. Uh. <laughs> oh my god! Let's get into it. We're going to kick this off starting with uh, Cameron's question in the category of DreamWorks animation. The question is, besides the Night Fury and the boss dragons, what is the best dragon in the How to Train Your Dragon franchise? Cameron, you are kicking this one off because you drafted this category. You get one minute to open your argument when you start talking. 
So for me, when it comes to arguing what the best breed of dragon in the How to Train Your Dragon franchise is, you want to look not just at a narrative standpoint, but at a standpoint of how it functions as a dragon within the universe. And that's why I chose the Stormcutter, most commonly known as Cloud Jumper, Valka's Dragon, in How to Train Your Dragons 2 and 3. From a sheer performance standpoint as a dragon, the Stormcutter displays supreme agility due to its X-shaped wings. It has a 180-degree rotating head, and it can shoot fire blasts in the shape of tornadoes that are capable of leveling an entire house in seconds, as shown during the housing raid in How to Train Your Dragon 2. Uh, chronologically through the series, the Stormcutter is shown to be one of the first dragons distinctly aware of determining the difference between humans who are threats and those who are not, showing an intelligence and an empathy that is part of the impetus and the core ethos of the How to Train Your Dragon series, knowing that Baby Hiccup and Young Valka are not a danger and even being able to sense the potential and the ability to work with dragons that they have in the future. The Stormcutter has supreme abilities in stamina, endurance, it is able to survive grapples with two Death Gripper dragons, uh, travel all the way back to New Burke, and also just narratively with its relationship with Valka, elevates the story of the series crime okay uh we're gonna bring in boatman boatman you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking i picked the monstrous nightmare the monstrous nightmare is not only in terms of the how to train your dragon universe but i think just kind of in terms of animation is one of the like most unique ideas for a creature I've ever seen and is so cool. For those who don't remember, the monstrous nightmare is the dragon who literally is able to just set itself on fire apart from breathing fire. It's able to actually just create fire itself and be this being of fire. Looks awesome, incredibly scary, but just because it's scary doesn't mean that it can't eventually be trained. It does have the narrative aspect of that is the dragon that Hiccup is assigned to kill in the final uh, dragon training confrontation, and he eventually chooses not to in a fantastic scene. And then uh, it becomes Snotlout's dragon uh, later on in the franchise and in the movie. Time. Okay, um, I can already tell you this much. I want to rewatch these movies now. Uh, all right, you guys, should. I'm in a free form. Uh, I love them so much. Uh, so I'm going to throw up the one-minute warning when the one-minute warning comes. If any of you talk too much, I'm going to throw up the let's move on. Don't make me do that or I will be upset. Five-minute free form when one of you starts. All right, um, so a dragon that can light itself on fire, while a very interesting visual ability, does not directly aid in its abilities to function as a dragon, does not help it in its terrifying nature of being able to level cities, all the stuff like that. And also, it's uh, really undercut when the fact that it's trained, because the moment that dragon is trained, it loses that ability, because you can't exactly light yourself on fire when you have a viking riding on your back. It just destroys the viking who's trained you. Uh, so first off, it absolutely does increase its ability to level cities, because ultimately, if you're on fire, that building's going to be way easier to knock down when you're on fire at the end of the day, uh, so, or when the building is on fire, if you can catch that building on fire. So that makes, that point makes no sense. And then the other point is that, uh, that you made is that the Viking, uh, at the end of the day, the Monster's Nightmare, you take away that ability. The Monster's Nightmare is still a big, hunking, scary dragon that I think has awesome flying abilities. So even if you take away that unique factor, and I think you can work ways around that with armor and different things and fireproof armor, that, that certainly can be done. So I think ultimately both of those factors work in. The Stormcutter is frankly, I don't think very... 
you say it's narratively important, but frankly, I don't think it actually is. Sure, it's Valka's dragon, but I, I don't think it has like the memorability that the monster's nightmare has. See, but I think it does. The relationship between Valka and Cloud Jumper, that scene where you see Valka just like standing on top of Cloud Jumper in the mask with the staff, is this really cool, great visual that shows dragons can be ridden and tamed in all of these different ways. In terms of your argument about the monstrous nightmare being able to light things on fire, every dragon can just light things on fire with their breath if they have a flame-based breath weapon. You say it's a great, it's great at flying, but it's shown to not be when it's in the cage and trying to leave because it gets easily distracted and thrown off by loud noises. It struggles to get out of that cage and even get up the walls. And when going at high speeds, it struggles to turn because of its massive weight and just crashes into things. Uh, so to go back to your point about the uh, the the fire, I was using that as a counterargument to yours because you said it didn't have the ability to level buildings, and yes, it absolutely does. It can also breathe fire, but you were saying that that was a counterpoint to your argument. Uh, and I think again. That's one moment in Stormcutter. Ultimately, that is a dragon. Whereas I think Snotlout's connection to his dragon within the franchise, that's way more pro and again, that iconic moment that you have way more. You have just a few with a minor character who's only in one movie and really only in about 50% of that movie. I think my character leaves way more of a mark on the actual franchise itself. Whereas yours is frankly, it's just like a best dragon. I think you have to actually have like a big presence within the movie to be one of the best breeds of dragons. The thing is, Cloud Jumper does have a big presence. Whenever we are with Valka, whenever we are with uh, Hiccup during the second movie and even in the third movie, we see Cloud Jumper is there. He is the leader amongst the dragons in the Bewildered Beast cave, even above the Bewildered Beast itself, this massive monster. From a narrative standpoint, we cannot ignore the fact that Cloud Jumper, who is a storm cutter, is the one who took Valka out of this place, who taught Valka for the first time, and in in essence, a baby hiccup at the time, that dragons are capable of more than just destruction. They It risks its life to save them from this burning, collapsing building that its allies of other dragons caused and was the first to take the step to work alongside humans instead of just being this destroying monster that the series wants us to learn dragons aren't that the nightmare seems to be. I guess your, your thing, though, is that, oh, it's like, yeah, the Stormcutters teaches us that dragons aren't monsters. We get that in the first movie. We get that with Night Fury. So I don't get that. That isn't a big like giant reveal. Wow, dragons aren't monsters. That's that's the franchise. Like that's that doesn't make any sense. And while the monster nightmare is a monster, he is eventually trained. So that doesn't that doesn't refute your point. It's just you can train the scarier monsters just as well as you can train the non-dragon or the the non scary monsters so i think that actually narratively the monster's nightmare being trained is actually a big bigger point than the storm cutter see but th there's no real significance in why the nightmare has to be the nightmare why it has to be this dragon of all dragons that we see being the one that's trained it's just one of a handful of random dragons that are passed by on the way to hiccup becoming this trainer it is just an obstacle in his way it doesn't aid him it's there with his friend who's for who where his dragon is forgettable you don't remember his dragon you don't remember the significance of him just that it's there and its powers aren't at full display because of the fact that it's trained I, I completely disagree. The Monstrous Nightmare is also the dragon that in the opening Welcome to Burke sequence, that is the dragon that like comes very close to killing Hiccup. So then... Time. Okay, uh, Boatman, we are going to start off with you. You have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. 
there's actually something very poetic there that in the opening sequence, the monstrous nightmare is the uh, dragon that comes very close to killing Hiccup as the very dangerous, scary looking dinosaur, or dragon, excuse me, very scary looking dragon that comes very close to killing Hiccup. And then we have that great moment where Hiccup chooses not to kill the monstrous nightmare, it's, and it's not arbitrary. He's easily the scariest out of all the dragons we have seen thus far, not just because of his ability to set itself on fire, but because of its largeness and all these other stuff. He is easily the most terrifying thing. Again, I think the Stormcutter doesn't, outside of the second movie, and again, only about half the second movie, doesn't have that connection to the franchise that the monstrous nightmare does, he is Snotlout's dragon, and I think that is important. And again, I think just has that narrative connection there. And I think that's what best is. It's not necessarily coolest dragon. Okay. Uh, we're going to bring in Holtzman, who has one minute to close his argument when he starts talking. So in the opening scene of How to Train Your Dragon, as much as the nightmare is there and is scary, he's also easily dispatched just by Stoic, a big guy with a hammer and not much else. It doesn't need all these overpowering things. In terms of being the scariest, we are told by the movies themselves that the Night Fury, the Red Death, the Bewilder Beast, the Death Grippers are all scarier dragons than the monstrous nightmare as the series goes on. Uh, speaking of Death Grippers, Cloud Jumper as an individual narratively in the third one where you're saying has no significance, goes on a rescue mission, attempts to save the people, grapples with two Death Grippers, dragons who are capable of killing any other dragon with a single poisonous sting, and defeats two of them and is still able to fly back to Newburgh, deliver information, deliver this rescue mission. The Nightmare is just a showboat, is the Mick Jagger of dragons. It lights itself on fire to look cool and then doesn't actually pack that much of a punch, just being a showboat because it can. Cloud Jumper shows that he has abilities. He knows how to use them. He has empathy, intelligence. He has this ethos that represents what the series is about. The connection between humans and dragons and his use and relationship with Valka and his use in the timeline is far more important and better than the nightmare. Time. All right. We will bring in the judges. Oof, okay. I tried doing more research, but so much stuff is just extended canon that I can't use. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Ask, ask Bowman all about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, judges, ready? Yeah. Um, I thought this was great. Um, I thought the main fight was really good. The openings both kind of explained to me what the dragons they were talking about were. I was able to picture them based on their descriptions and what their purpose was in the movies, not just singular, but plural. I thought they did a really, really good job, um, and their and their back and forth I thought was really strong. This this was great, uh, but then the closings happened, and I thought Boatman's closing was really good, and I was like, "Fuck, I don't know where this is going." And I thought Cameron just like wiped all over him in the closing. I thought Cameron was able to come take everything Boatman said in his closing and just turn it around on him. I thought Cameron's closing was the strongest thing he did in the whole fight. Um, really, really good closing that was able to take what Boatman said, turn it on its head, and just take everything he had said previously about um his dragon and and up it. I thought it was great. Um, so we say a lot like, oh, if someone knows a lot about their category, I didn't think that necessarily happened this time. Like, I think Boatman came to play 
in Cameron's category, but the closing for Cameron was just really strong for me. So, uh, Brian, where are you voting? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think these are two great choices. Um, I did find it interesting that uh, Boatman said, you know, we're not talking about coolest because actually I would have thought his was cooler anyway. Um, so oh, we got my vote, but this isn't coolest. It's for best. Um, but I agree with most of what you said. I voted for Cameron as well. Um, I think the big CA for best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you said the last time I just, you know, wrote. Oh, yeah. You're just yeah, getting yeah, me. Um, I think this is another one of those categories where it's just, you know, one person's you know, passion, passion for a subject kind of shows through because he was able to just fire at him with tons of examples, whether it be plot or character development, things like that. And not that Caleb didn't do a bad job at all. Just Cameron just kept piling it on, though. Uh, Mark, your vote doesn't count. Where are you going and why? Um, I'll see if you can see this. Yeah, I also uh, went with uh, holes. Holes. <laughs> holes. Holes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, um, I feel like it. I, I feel like throughout uh, Cameron, I think meticulously. <laughs> put together this argument i think kind of at the beginning where he kind of made the argument that the monstrous nightmare wasn't super practical of of a dragon i think kind of throughout he also did a good job of kind of showing how this how his dragon i think has more of a connection to the franchise like bowman started to kind of win me over a little bit at least in his closing whenever he brought up that hiccup connection like as i didn't remember that that was good although i mean I think Cameron just did this one. Although I will say, like, what does Mick Jagger did to deserve, you know, that burn? For the record, <laughs> the Mick Jagger thing is a direct quote from Chris Sanders, director of How to Train Your Dragon. <laughs> All right. Well, Cameron wins the point. Uh, we're going to move on to the next question as I hear Ellie scream from the heavens. Uh, we're going to move on to question two. It is drafted by Mr. Boatman in the category of Oscars. And the question is, what is the best classic acting Oscar win from a bad movie? Uh, so, Boatman, you get to kick this off. You have one minute when you start talking. The Three Faces of Eve is a bad movie. It's very hokey, very cheesy, and but somehow it's also able to be kind of boring and doesn't really have much going on. It's just this very run-of-the-mill, like, multiple personalities kind of trying to be a true story, but feels a little exploitive and isn't really actually trying to be accurate. So it, it's both boring and is kind of goofy, but not in a fun way. That being said, Joanne Woodward absolutely kills it. She is has to play three separate distinct personalities of the same person and she absolutely sells every single one making them feel like different people even though we know that they are just one person and even though it's a bad movie it is a phenomenal performance from her and she deserved her oscar okay uh we are going to move over to mr holtzman who gets to kick off his argument with his one minute opening when he starts talking when looking at some of the greatest actors of all time, one of the most obvious answers that a lot of people will tell you is Sidney Poitier. And Sidney Poitier won his Oscar for the film Lilies of the Field, and deservedly so. He is bringing a sense of heart, charisma, charm, and class to a story that frankly does not deserve to have a performance as good as him in it. It is a story that has not aged particularly well with the entire plot sinking into stereotype, a film that posits itself as this simple little story about the power of friendship and religion, and ends up in a lot of convoluted moments uh, proselytizing to 
you, being preached to both as characters and as an audience. But throughout all of it, Poitiers in this really simple narrative that is being forced down your throat is able to bring this class, this charm, this nuance to it and have this growth arc, have these great comedic and dramatic moments, bring his trademark levity and realness to this role. Uh, he is able to rise above the limited and condescending material given to his character um, and just be free, be loose in a way that he doesn't in a lot of movies. And it's refreshing and it's fantastic. Time. Ellie agrees with both of you. She <laughs> thinks these are both bad movies, clearly. Is she, uh, five, is she cheering for us? <laughs> she's, she's saying the movies are bad, guys. Uh, five minute free form when one of you starts talking. Okay, so I think you're wrong twofold. Because for one, I think that this is a pretty average Sidney Portier performance. It's Sidney Portier, but it's it is not any of his best work. It is ultimately just Sidney Portier kind of doing the thing that is the through line through most movies without adding anything new like he does and stuff like The Defiant Ones or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner in the Heat of the Night. It's also, I think, a good movie. Uh, I actually think you get so many great moments. Like you have that moment where he teaches the nuns to sing. You have so many other great moments like that where he where Homer is able to, you know, his differences with the head nun, Lilia Scala, who is a great performance in the movie, uh, Three Faces of Eve, you don't have a good movie there, but you do have Char uh, Joanne Woodward playing Eve Black, Eve White, and Jane, all three distinct personalities. Great performance in a bad movie. There's a fine performance in a good movie. See, the thing is, I think Woodward actually does a lot of actively bad work. She never actively sells the transition from Eve to Eve to Jane because she's always looking down like this and covering her face. It's really easy to say I'm acting and say I'm changing when I don't let you see any of that happening. Woodward gets stuck and bogged down in the melodrama of being this person so often that when we do have those moments to see the more outgoing part of her, we don't really believe it. It doesn't reach its fullest potential. Um, as well, Three Faces of Eve is a beautifully sympathetic portrayal of mental illness in an era where, frankly, people with schizophrenia in film were portrayed as villains and evil and these terrible people. And is a refreshing and important movie in the time because it humanizes her. As well, you want to talk about other good performances elevating a movie? You have Lee J. Cobb giving an incredible supporting performance, which is way better than anyone else in Lilies of the Field could be doing. I love Lee J. Cobb, but he gets nothing to do in that movie. Absolutely nothing to do in your in uh, Three Faces of Eve. And and you saying the movie isn't about the transitions between the three characters. So saying she's covering her face to show the transition, that's because that's what the actual Eve Kendall did to show the transitions between the character. So that's that's a ridiculous complaint. It's not about the transitions. It's about creating three distinct characters, which is exactly what he did. Sidney Poitier is an example of, again, he's fine, but he's not doing anything particularly interesting you look at something like the defiant ones you look at raisin in the sun you look at even guess who's coming to dinner where he's doing something similar to this but gets to have a whole lot more gravitas he gets nothing in this movie joanne woodward gets a lot to do sydney portier is giving a completely mediocre performance See, but I disagree. And the thing is, you're saying it's not Poitier's best. Poitier at his fifth or sixth best is still way better than a lot of actors could ever hope to do. But he is stuck in this movie where the plot really has nothing going on. It is indescribably boring. It is guy shows up, 
Guy starts building a building, guy finishes building a building, and he leaves without getting paid. He, he is able to have these great moments where he has that scene where he has the one-sided argument with the nun where he is the only one talking, quoting scripture to justify that he's getting payment. He has these fun moments of him having this like lovely song number of him saying amen with the nuns. All of these really fun things that allow him to show the side that we never see from him before. Whereas Woodward, you're saying the real Eve Kendall didn't do this. Eve Kendall was not a real person. This is inspired loosely by a true story, but was not the real person that existed. So go back to what you were saying. All those moments that you were talking about, those are things in the script. The singing with Amen with the nuns, all of those moments that you are talking about, those are things in the script of Lilies of the Valley. That is not something that Cordy is bringing to the table. You didn't talk about any way in which he does it. You are just talking about things that the character does. That's stuff that has to do with the movie. Uh, the I, I was mistaken. I believe that Eve was based on a real person. At the end of the day, though, I still think the film isn't about the transition. It's about it's about the individual characters that she makes within the thing, and she's able to create, you know, this very seductive character, this very neat character, and this kind of different and more in-between character. I think she's able to craft these three different personalities, whereas, again, I think Portier is not doing anything new that we haven't seen from him, and frankly, shouldn't have beaten Paul Newman, who is much better in the same year. Well, first of all, the question is not most deserving. It's just which one is the best of the two of our picks. Second of all, uh, the biggest thing is Eve is given the opportunity to do these things in the narrative. You have the scene where she goes out to the nightclub and she has to switch between being Eve Black and Eve White and her reactions and her interactions and her, frankly, fear in that moment. And that is imbued by the narrative. The narrative knows how to put her in these situations and how to direct her in these situations where even the movie takes these tonal changes and applies them into the film. So it doesn't so it might feel inconsistent, but that is deliberate with the changes with her time. I'm going to need to turn on a lamp. Uh, okay, so um, we are going to start with Cameron. Cameron, you get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. The thing that makes Poitier's performance the best Oscar win in a bad movie is that his performance is elevating the movie in a way that frankly no one else could. And it's not, and it's doing something different that we haven't seen from him. We get to see this charisma that isn't just the stiff Sidney Poitier that we saw a lot of the time in movies beforehand. We get to see him rise above the limited, condescending, boring, and frankly problematic and offensive stereotypical narrative forced upon not just him, but the supporting characters in the movie. He is able to have these fun moments. He's able to have these serious moments. He is able to have all of these uh, icon iconic and enjoyable moments within the film. The problem with The Three Faces of Eve is that Joanne Woodward is not selling the whole point of the movie, which is she is constantly changing between the back and forth of these things. As much as we see person A, person B, person C, we rarely get the idea that all three are the same because we do not see her transitioning between them. The movie does its best in every way to justify it and make it work by giving these narrative shifts, these score-based shifts, these directorial shifts, and giving her these narrative situations in which she could display that performance, but she actively undercuts them at every moment time okay uh we're gonna move over to boatman boatman you have one minute to close when you start talking holzman keeps calling lilies of the valley or lilies of the field stereotypical and all these other things but he hasn't actually given any specific things within the film that have that uh the only things he's given are scenes that are great and they are great because they are written as great and ultimately the one thing that he said was Oh, it's about a guy who builds a church and doesn't get paid. 
Lord of the Rings is about people returning jewelry. You uh, you can sum any movie up and make it sound boring. At the end of the day, Lilies of the Field is a movie where you get to a character and another character who through religion and through differences and all these other things are able to see each other on a level and it is beautiful. Three Faces of Eve, I don't know what Holzman's talking about about these directorial changes. They're not in the movie. They're not there. Uh, you, what you have that represents that, Holzman even represented the fear, which is you can see through Jan Joanne Woodward in the transitions when she plays these three distinct characters incredibly well. Time. Oh, man, this is a good one. <laughs> okay, uh, we're going to bring in the judges. Boom, boom. Okay. You better believe the first thing I did was go to look at Tim's reaction backstage to a certain comment that was made. All right, uh, judges ready? Yep, sure. Okay. Um, actually, one sec. Mark, go ahead. You're kicking us off. Okay. Oh joy. Um, uh, yeah, th this was a really hard uh, <laughs> to judge off of. I feel like uh, both, both. Oh, the suspense. Mark, you there? What? Uh, oh, you back. you okay. cut out. You're back. Yeah, you're I, back. I cut out? Okay. Go you ahead. think that's something. Okay. You know, it just – so it doesn't happen again. I I, I, I went with Boatman. Um, I, 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 think, I think at the end of the day, I think I'm just kind of more sold on the intricacies of, of the performance of Joanne Woodward and, and also kind of how – you know, the movie, like, you know, wasn't that great. I think, and also, I think Boatman, I think, actively, he did a better job, I think, of fighting back against uh, the Potier pick than I feel like Holzman did on the John Woodward pick. I'll go next. Um, I'm on a boat, motherfucker. Don't you ever forget. Um, I do think that Cameron did a good job um, in his opening, especially. I think he convinced me of why uh, Potier's performance is very good. Um, but I think Boatman was able to kind of tell me why the whole movie is actually pretty good. And I think that Boatman especially was able to kind of, like Mark said, the complexity of the performance in a bad movie, Cameron was throwing out like, no, it's these other things that are making the movie good. It's not necessarily the performance. And I thought Bowman did a really good job of kind of explaining, like, no, it's just the performance. Uh, so um, but both movies I'm actually interested in watching now. So thank you, gentlemen. Um, Tim, Rob let me tell you, no, you are not interested in watching Three Faces of <laughs> I absolutely am. The performance sounds really good. I mean, uh, or the performance. The performance is very good. Uh, Brian, uh, your vote doesn't count. Where would you have gone and why? Uh, I have not seen either movie. I left trivia so I wouldn't have to watch movies I don't want to watch. Um, 
so yeah, going strictly by the debate. Um, I, I don't think that uh, Boatman did a very good job of promoting or why his answer was the best, but I thought he did a much better job of why Cam uh, Cameron's wasn't. So I also voted for Caleb. Um, I think that he did he did a great job of attacking, you know, why that why his was actually a good movie. And he really wants to point to me when he kept saying, you know, really the things that he's brought up aren't the acting, it's the script. Yeah. Okay. Now that the record uh, state, I had not seen a performance that I thought was a good answer for this question, and I figured this is the best I had. Cameron, I'm gonna start muting you. My god, Cameron, please keep it down. No, I'm just kidding. Uh okay, so Cameron, we're going to you now. Ellie, I'm sorry. Okay, we're going to your question next. So you get to you get to talk first. Uh, and the question is in the category of musicals, things I enjoy. What 21st century musical would have been better as a non-musical film? So I guess we're not talking about musical. Uh, so Cameron, you get to kick it off. You have one minute when you start talking. You give me an Oscar-nominated director and the most awarded actor in the history of the Oscars and put them together to make an autobiographical film, or not an autobiographical film, but a biographical film about one of the most prolific Italian directors of all time, which is a remake of one of the most acclaimed films ever made. And that movie you have is Nine. Nine as a film, frankly, does not work because of the musical numbers. It is a film full of a cast that cannot sing with one standard of Marion Cotillard, and it fails to utilize them in any way. It has musical numbers that bog it down that are frankly annoying, pointless, and waste all of our time. But if you take those musical numbers out and you give us this honest and true portrayal of a director recounting his own life from an Oscar-nominated director who has made Oscar-winning movies about show business, from an actor who has shown that he has all this range, and you surround him by Judy Dench, Penelope Cruz, Nicole Kidman, Marion Cotillard, and Sophia Loren, and you give me an ensemble, a story, and a cast for the ages in a beautiful and great dramatic film. Time. I promise I will turn my lamp on after Boatman's one minute opening when he starts talking. I think I'm in agreement with everyone else who, when they saw the movie Cyrano, we all collectively said, that was great. I wish it wasn't a musical. Because the big problem with Cyrano is that Peter Dinklage cannot sing. He is giving such a great performance and it's such a unique take on this character, Cyrano de Bergerac, we've seen before, but we actually get this unique angle to it because instead of just, oh, guy with the big nose, it's a little person. And I think making that the angle of it and actually bringing it with some more dramatic flair, I think that would have been so good, and it would have been the best adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac, because a lot of them have great performances, but the movie itself isn't there, and Joe Wright's costuming and production design is brilliant, but Peter Dinklage cannot sing, and it hurts the movie so, 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 so much, because he can't sing. Time. All right. Um, I've seen both these movies, so hey, la la la. Five minute freeform when one of you starts talking. The big problem with your pick is that your movie is eight and a half. Nine, the thing that makes nine unique is that nine is nine, the musical, the adaptation of the stage musical. Without it, it is just eight and a half, but it doesn't have the actual perspective of Federico Fellini. So what's even the point of it? We have eight and a half. Eight and a half exists. And without Fellini directing it, 
then what even are you doing with it? Because you can't even call it a Fellini thing because the main character isn't even Federico Fellini. Uh, Cyrano, without the musical, is still a fantastic adaptation of a story, and it would be the best version of that story. Okay, so first of all, Cyrano, the movie you're talking about, is also an adaptation of a pre-existing stage musical. It has beautiful music within it, like songs from the National, like Wherever I Fall, uh, Madly, Someone, Overcome, all of these beautiful, beautiful numbers. Peter Dinklage is a good singer, regardless of what the internet will tell you. And the reason why is because his voice, as much as it doesn't show the range or the power, that is not what Cyrano as a character is about. Cyrano is is showing this deep and unrefined internal passion that he has. And Dinklage's voice reflects that. Meanwhile, in Nine, you have all of these actors who can't sing that I'll raise over your hypothetical Peter Dinklage, like a Judy Dench, a Penelope Cruz, a Nicole Kidman, a Fergie, a Daniel Day-Lewis. All of your cast can't sing instead of one person in yours. There is a big difference between mine would be the best adaptation of the source material if it wasn't a musical, because also the musical numbers slow down the pacing of the film, whereas you need that kinetic energy there that every other adaptation has, but it would have the edge and the societal implications of Peter Dinklage casting that would make it work. Nine, without the music, is, again... It's eight and a half, but not from the perspective of Fellini, from being directed by Fellini, which is what makes it interesting. The fact that Fellini is directing eight and a half is what makes it interesting. Without that, you have nothing. You don't have anything. See, but the thing is, I think when directors make movies about themselves, apart from maybe eight and a half and all that jazz, they can be stuck in this place of bias, falsehood, and untruth about their own lives. By giving a more objective take from an outsider's perspective, giving it a more modern and English language take that makes it more accessible, removing the three hour long runtime that is a massive barrier for entry and frankly is inconsistent throughout its runtime, and condensing it down into this shorter, more simple, but still the same core story about the same ideas with a stellar cast who can't sing and taking away their reason to sing makes it a much better movie it improves it that much more over the original i don't need it to be better than eight and a half i just need it to be better than the nine that already exists again you what you just described to me sounds awful you are talking about shopping not not only you're making it more accessible chopping it down which is widely considered eight and a half is widely considered one of the greatest movies ever made and you yourself just said besides eight and a half and all that jazz you directors don't have that objective perspective Fellini does eight and a half exists there's no purpose to nine existing whatsoever as your movie unless it is a musical what it should have been is a musical, but with better singers. That's the thing. Cyrano is a movie that if you cast better singers, you lose Peter Dinklage's brilliant performance as the character. But if you take out the fact that he can't sing, then it's great. And it still has the pacing that you need for a Cyrano de Bergerac adaptation. The thing is, the heart of Cyrano as a film and as a story is it is all about the poetry and the passion and the heart from it. And in modern society, the most accessible form of poetry that anyone will tell you is music, is that verse. And you said earlier, like, it needs those fun, witty moments. He has those fun, witty moments. He has the takedown of these gestures at the theater. He has these one-on-ones 
with uh, Christian and with all of his other soldiers and everything like that, he is able to maintain that energy. And again, his singing is better than you are saying. It is exactly what the character needs. It shows the ethos and the pathos of that character, this unrefined passion that comes out no matter how much it might not be perfect, but it is exactly what needs to be said in that moment. The wittiness and all of those things, those come from the non-musical moments. Those are not the musical moments. Those are the non-musical moments. All of the interaction with the soldiers, that's the non-musical moments. Again, you make that a non-musical and you're not losing anything. In fact, you're gaining stuff. And again, you can argue all you want about, oh, it's it, it's a representation of the character. But no, it isn't. It, it just simply is not. It sounds bad. You can argue, oh, Javert sounding like he's gargling rock salt is a representation of that character being irritated, but that doesn't mean that Russell Crowe is good in Les Miserables. It's still a bad version of that, and it doesn't work. And a Cyrano that is just a the best Cyrano adaptation is better than the worst eight and a half. Time. Okay. Um, we are going to kick it off. The closings with Boatman. One minute closing when you start talking. Holtzman and I are both talking about source materials that have been done before. Holtzman's source material is a butchering of a brilliant, beloved, considered one of the greatest films of all time, and making it without taking away the point of order, which even Holtzman said was an objective viewpoint of Fellini's direction, which is what you need to make that movie work and interesting because it is Fellini's perspective. And essentially just chopping away and taking away everything that makes it interesting in one of the greatest films of all time. Mine is a film that takes a good script, but at the end of the day, a pretty superficial one and adds gravitas to it through Peter Dinklage's casting, but removes the unnecessary fat and flab from the songs. And again, takes away the big criticism that everyone has, which is Peter Dinklage's singing. Time. Okay. Uh, we're going to move over to Cameron, who has one minute to close his argument when he starts talking. Cyrano is an adaptation of an already existing musical that is widely praised for its music above all else with music by the national, the same people who made music for films like Once and Begin Again. Uh, it is full of great musical numbers. Wherever I fall, someone to say overcome. The heart of Cyrano is about poetry, about that musicality in his voice. And Peter Dinklage is doing exactly what is required of him. Even if it's not the most technically proficient thing you want to say, it is what is needed. I do not need to pitch you that nine is better than eight and a half. That is not what this fight is. I need to pitch you that get Getting rid of Be Italian, getting rid of Fergie singing, getting rid of Kate Hudson doing this while singing about movies for five minutes is bad. And that getting rid of it makes it better. Taking away Judy Dench being unable to sing, Nicole Kidman being unable to sing, Daniel Day-Lewis being unable to sing, and letting Daniel Day-Lewis, Nicole Kidman, Judy Dench, Penelope Cruz, um, Sophia Loren all just act, be powerhouses in this story about the power of cinema, the fall and rise of a director when he is stuck in the hardest moment of his career from an Oscar-nominated director, that sounds far better than what we got. Time. Fucking hell, man. Um, okay. Ah, oh, fuck, I forgot one of the things I wrote down that I was going to say. Shit. <laughs>
what movie did you like when I went like this? <laughs> sure. Okay, uh, Brian, you're good. Mark, you yep. good? Yep. All right, Brian, you're kicking us off. Uh, yeah, for me, I thought that one person definitely took it, and that was Holzman. Um, I think that he did a good <laughs> job of, of pitching me why Cyrano was actually a, a, a good movie as a musical and how the songs and stuff you know, supported it. Um, both movies have people who aren't great singers. Um, but he has just wasted such a great cast, a great director, uh, the, and the musical numbers are what bogged it down and made it as boring as it was. All right, um, Mark. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think the better way to do this is just to reveal first. I, I'm a Cameron. Um, I'll be very honest. I was fully prepared to give Boatman the point, and then. Um, Cameron had his closing and kind of shut down any, like pretty much any kind of reasoning for why I would have gone with Caleb. Like I, I feel like at the end, of, I think at the end of the day, you know, I think he pretty much, he pretty much excluded, you know, like at the end of the day, nine, maybe kind of a shitty musical. And at least if you take it, probably is better and just kind of went on that tirade and that kind of sealed it for him, for me. All right, my vote doesn't count, but um, I actually went with Caleb. Um, I I thought that Caleb's whole thing about like a great version of Cyrano versus like a shitty version of Eight and a Half that kind of worked for me. Maybe I'm cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but um, I haven't been here in a while. But I thought it I thought it worked really well, and I thought Boatman did a really good job of explaining why that nine actually is super interesting and the stuff going on in the movie is good. And maybe Holtzman just has it out for Rob Marshall. Uh, he didn't say that. I, named the Oscar I'm name. interpreting that <laughs> myself. Uh, but also to be fair, I think Boatman did a very good job of explaining why this is maybe the best version of Cyrano if there wasn't music. And I thought Boatman was like, or I thought that Holtzman's only counteract was like, no, Peter Dicklidge can sing. The internet lies. <laughs> I was like, eh, it didn't really work for me. So I thought Boatman had it, but um, that's why we have three judges. So we are going to move on to the final question of the round. Boatman needs to hit this in order to send it to the bonus question. Oh, it's in the category of Disney animation. And the question is, which pre-1982 non-segment Disney animated film is the most boring. There's a few to choose from, gentlemen. Uh, so we're going to kick it off with Boatman. Boatman, you have one minute when you start talking. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is a movie where nothing happens. Nothing happens. There is no antagonist. There is no central story. There is nothing. It is just a bunch of things that happen. That is what that movie is. And there is nothing like, there's wind. Who wants honey? This happened. Nothing. Nothing. No central conflict. No interesting care. Like, no interesting things to care about. There is nothing in the movie. It is just, it is a hangout movie. That's what it is. It's a hangout movie. There is nothing happened. 
that happens within the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. It's just, here's what's going on in the Hundred Acre Wood. There is no plot, no nothing. It is completely and utterly boring because nothing happens in the movie. Time. Okay, uh, we're going to move over to Bo or to Holtzman, sorry. Uh, Holtzman, one minute when you start talking. If I turned on Animal Planet and spent 77 minutes sitting and watching videos of a deer doing nothing except for hanging out with other animals, I think most people would agree that I wasted my time watching something that's pretty uninteresting. And that's the whole plot of Bambi. It is deer is born. Look, he got animal friends. Oh, his mom's dead. Oh, he's old. He's got kids. Oh, boy, a fire. And that's the whole movie. They try so unbelievably hard to make things that are not interesting interesting to the point where they make up stupid words like Twitter padded to get you interested in the fact that a deer is a little bit horny. Uh, the only attempt at an interesting scene is when there's a fire and it constantly cuts away from the fire. Oh, they're going to jump over a waterfall? Let's cut to the bottom of the waterfall. They are moving at the same slow, jaunty pace that they normally move while this fire's going because our animators can't make things fast. Its only attempt at interesting moments involves small animals moving slightly faster than small animals normally do, and that's boring as shit. Fuck, kill me. Sorry, I'm not supposed to break the serious character, but that was funny. Okay, uh, Bambi. Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, five-minute freeform. When one of you starts to talk. Yeah, so uh, I, I think you're completely mischaracterizing Bambi because, again, beyond that, you have Bambi's mom dying, which if that was a boring, insignificant moment where nothing happens, then it would not have traumatized generations of children. That it, Like, Bambi's mom is like the meme death. Everybody was like, that was terrifying. That traumatized me as a kid. Like... Bambi's mom dying, and the scene up leading up to it where the birds are, like, flying, that is something interesting that happens. Bambi's mom gets shot, and then you do have the fire, which I think is intense and terrifying and scary, and you have the jokes in the beginning, but again, you have the third, you have a third act climax. Your movie has a climax. Mini Adventure of the Winnie Pooh has nothing. See, but the Minis of Adventures of the Pooh does have something. It has these three very distinct independent stories. You have this really heartwarming story of Tigger attempting to find someone to be with, going around, seeing all these people, and finding the bond in Rue, this young child of all places, and then getting stuck in this tree. And the movie does something really fun and interesting, where how does he get out? The narrator has to tilt the book, and he can crawl off. You have these musical numbers, like the wonderful thing about Tiggers. You have the musical number about heffalumps and woozles that is reminiscent of Pink Elephants on Parade, where you have these cool, weird visuals that are honestly a little bit weird and, and scary at times bambi's mom dying an animal dying is normal we're acting like bambi's mom getting shot is the super interesting thing deer get shot all the time animals get shot duck dynasty ran for 11 seasons and that's all that show was about it's boring okay so you're saying oh animals get shot but at the end of the day i mean characters die yes people die in real life by that logic any death that happens in a movie is uninteresting. That is your logic there. Death is a real thing, and the fact that this is the really the first Disney movie to actually confront not having a character come back, but an actual death, and have a character whose mother died and grappling with that grief, and then have a really somber moment when the father comes up to him, it's like, your mother's dead. Like, that is so intense. At the end of the day, you described, like, 
five minutes of the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Like, it's nothing actually happens in terms of the plot. My movie has a climax. Your movie does not have a climax. Your movie just has a bunch of things that happen. That is what happens in your movie. Just a bunch of things with no purpose. It's boring because there's no connective plot narrative thread. Okay, the thing is, like you said yourself, Winnie the Pooh is a hangout movie. It's a slice of life movie. And I happen to know that a lot of people, yourself included, love slice of life as a genre. You don't need conflict and antagonists and all of this to make a movie interesting and fun to watch and not boring. You just need characters that you enjoy spending time with. I enjoy spending time with Tigger, this fun, bubbly, energetic person. I enjoy spending time with Piglet, this awkward and anxious and shy individual but who learns to try and come out of his shell and is put through these terrible circumstances like a flood that washes away his home and he goes over the edge of a waterfall Pooh is this fun character who gets stuck in these funny situations um owl is this arrogant know-it-all who gets hoisted by his own petard at points these interesting characters make the movie interesting because I enjoy spending time with them instead of these boring animals with no real personalities. I mean, people love yeah. Thumper and people love Thumper and Flower. Like Thumper and Flower are very fun side characters. Flower, you have this skunk who doesn't quite realize that he's a skunk, and I think Thumper, you got this cocky little kid going on who then becomes a cocky adult. Uh, I think you have all that going on. And at the end of the day, the question isn't worst. The question is most boring, as in least amount of things that actually happen within the movie. In Bambi, you have the fire. You have the climactic stuff. You have interesting things that I could tell you. In the mini adventure Winnie the Pooh, you just have things that are happening. That is what it is. Um, the thing is, there are things that are happening in the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh that are fun and interesting, not just narratively, but visually. You have these fourth wall breaks. You have these moments of the storm, of people going over. You have Tigger getting stuck in the tree. You have Pooh getting stuck in the wall, which is a very funny and really enjoyable to watch moment. You have the Heffalumps and Woozle scene, like I said, that is both visually, musically, and narratively interesting, where Pooh is having this entire nightmare. Bambi, you waste a lot of time meandering throughout the woods, watching deer who don't talk, not talk, and then waiting for something to happen. Sure, one character gets shot, and there's a fire that's not very well animated, but that is nothing compared to all of the characters and the moments that the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh brings to the table with its story. I, at the end of the day, you have things that actually happen within the movie. At the end of the day, you can have interesting people talk, but that's still boring. It's just, it's a bunch of things that happen. At the end of the day, Bambi is a movie where things actually happen. There is a climax. There's a narrative structure and an arc and all those things. And you have songs. You have Love is a Song, which is an Oscar-nominated original song, which there is not one in the mini adventure. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, we're going to kick this off with Holtzman. Holtzman, you have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. The thing that makes a movie boring is the fact that I am sitting there and I'm not enjoying my time and I would rather be doing anything else because the things that might be happening are not interesting and when those things aren't happening, there isn't anything happening and that is Bambi. The few moments where something is happening, frankly, I am not interested. It is not animated well. It has not made me interested and the characters, Thumper and Flower, are ancillary side characters who frankly don't have definitive personality traits that I care about, remember, or empathize with. The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh has the storm, 
has the getting stuck in the tree, has the fourth wall breaks, has Pooh getting stuck, has characters going over a waterfall, has fun, energetic characters, musical numbers, all these great things. Love is a Song is a boring song. It really is from Bambi, but Heffalumps and Woozles, great song. The wonderful thing about Tiggers, so unbelievably fun. We get these relationships, we get these connections, and it gets us involved and interested. And it is interesting because we fall in love with these characters, because we care about them, we empathize with them, and it makes us feel the way we did when we were kids. It is that beautiful, lovely slice of life that we want to go back to. Back to strike it from the record. First time I've had to strike something from the record tonight. Holtzman. <laughs> uh, five minute or five minute freeform. Fuck, I haven't done this in a while. One minute closing for Boatman when he starts talking. If the question was worst, then the question would be what is the worst non segment Disney animated film? The question is most boring. The end of the day, I think you and I can both agree. A Yule log is boring. I like a Yule log. It's comforting. It's nice to watch. That's what Winnie the Pooh is. It's a Yule log. Bambi is a Yule log that then turns into fireworks in the last 10 minutes. That's interesting. That's exciting. That is a thing that happens. At the end of the day, Holzman was claiming that the characters aren't there. I think Bambi matches Winnie the Pooh in terms of characters because you have Thumper and you have Flower, who, again, I described to you their personalities there. And I think you have those there. You also have Mr. Hollow, I think, is a very goofy character who claims to know all these things about different things that he really doesn't. And Heffalumps and Woozles is actually kind of a boring number. It doesn't have the intensity. It's like a neutered version of Pink Elephants on Parade. Time. Man, I hate my job. Why do I do this? What a time to Okay, I got my joke answer written down. Uh, I get to go first. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This was weird. Um, both actually really interesting picks, especially the what I know about the people involved. Uh, strange picks. Don't let that go into account uh that being said based on the arguments i went with cameron um and the reason why i think that boatman did a really good job of explaining why there was some stuff in bambi that is good he went on a lot about why the question was boring, not bad or good. But I thought that his argument didn't really support that point in that he was talking about how 
Thumper and uh, a flower are good. Uh, not necessarily exciting. He talked about a lot about how the last 10 minutes are like fireworks crazy. Um, but that the rest of the movie, he didn't talk about the rest of the movie. And I think that he brought up flower and, and, and um, thumper a lot. And Cameron kind of countered it with like, Tigger has this, Owl does that, Eeyore does this, Pooh does this, like brought up every other character that's like Winnie the Pooh is walking with bangers. Um, and so I don't think they both actually I, I like both of these movies quite a bit, actually. I think Bambi's super underrated, and Winnie the Pooh is a delight. It's a warm hug on a on a cold day. Uh, but that being said, I think that Cameron just did a better job of being able to say that. You say Winnie the Pooh is boring, but these characters are really fun to be with, and that's not boring. Uh, so, Brian, you're going next. Uh, I disagree with Tim in that both of these movies are awful. Oh, um, great. Although I think when I made this, when we came up with the question, I think I said the correct answer is all of them, because old Disney movies are boring. No. Um, I, do dis I uh, do agree with um, Tim, though, in that I voted for Holzman. Um I just feel like, like, like Caleb said in his, in his closing that, you know, the, the, he pointed out the question is not worst movie, it's most boring. But then he argued his, most of his argument was arguing it as a plot question. And um, while Winnie the Pooh doesn't have a plot, Cameron pointed out well, that still lots of interesting things happened, you know, things that made it, you know, fun to watch, things like that. And so while maybe it doesn't have a plot, it was not as boring. All right, uh, Mark, your vote doesn't count. Where are you going and why? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's honestly hurt to do so, but I honestly did go with Caleb. Um, I, I think where it where where I mostly landed on was when and we didn't honestly it wasn't spent that long on, but it's something I kept thinking about throughout is the Bambi's mom dying, and I and I didn't really feel like Cam Cameron had a really good defense of that one. And I feel like ultimately, like it is like a super iconic thing that, you know, we, I don't think we can kind of look past on that. Because other than that, I mean, it was a really good back and forth. But I think, you know, the Bambi, at least the uh, the Bambi mom point kind of pushed it for me just a little bit. But I mean, like you said, my, my point doesn't matter. So, yeah. And that means your winner is Cameron Holtzman. Uh, we are going to go into post-match interviews. We're going to start by talking to Caleb. Caleb, fantastic showing today. Um, split the vote. There wasn't a clean – was there a clean sweep? The first two were clean sweeps. The first two were clean sweeps. <laughs> Why listen to me? I don't know what I'm talking about. But, Caleb, you split the last two uh, between Mark and myself. And uh, fantastic match. I thought, I thought you played really well. I think in this match particularly – you came with a sense of I really want to come prepared and and and, and jump in and attack from the get go, and I think that showed. How are you feeling about the match? I know you don't like to lose, but I think, man, you you played really great. How are you feeling? I mean, I I disagree with your assessment. I was kind of out of it today. Oh, um, I, I I I don't want to get too much into it, but I kind of had. Something tough happened today, but I didn't want to push the match because I kind of knew this was the last day we could shoot. Uh, 
but and I'm kind of fighting a cold too. Um, so I kind of went into this thing and I could pull this off, but maybe not. Um, but maybe that's, but you know, I kind of went in thinking I was going to lose most of the matches that I played. Uh, so I thought maybe that could have worked out, but not today. Holtzman's just a great competitor and he, he talks very knowledgeable on this stuff because he knows the stuff. Uh, as I think him versus Cody going to be really interesting. Going to be excited to see that. Bowman, your beard looks fantastic. Who do you want to play in your next match? Uh, yeah, I, I'll play again. I, that should have been the first part of the question is, do you actually want to play again? Um, but yeah, sure. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, whoever you throw at me, I, I kind of want to avenge my Jacoby loss now that there's not uh TV in the category anymore. And like, you know, cause I, 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 that's the only loss I'm still kind of salty about. Cause I was like, yeah, I, I had to pick movies, which he could easily watch in two hours. And he was able to argue about a full season of game of Thrones, which I was not able to watch in preparation for a match. Uh, so I I'd like to be able to fight Jacoby on the merit of things we can watch in two hours. Hey man, you know, I always throw out that Jacoby is a former champion because I think it's true. It is true. Um, but at, and so I think it's worth saying, but at this point with this loss, you are at seven and four with two KOs and Jacoby is at seven and three with one KO. I think we might be able to make that happen later this season. So we'll talk later, but Bowman, <laughs> great job today. I think this was a really great performance and uh, thank you for coming to play in the finals. Very much appreciate it. So we are going to move over to the winner today, Cameron Holtzman. I joke, I kid, not really. You love to talk Cameron, but this is your time to talk. You won the match. You're going to mayhem at the multiplex. How do you feel? Ellie's pumped. Bucky's excited. What's your thoughts? Um, first of all, I believe this is my first ever appearance at a Mayhem in the Multiplex. I have go. appeared at the year-end event once, and otherwise, I think that's the only time I've ever appeared in one of our special event things. Game of uh, Facts. That's pretty fun and cool. Um, yeah, no, I, I will fully see you. I, I do like to talk. Um, but that's what debate is. It is competitive talking at each other. Um, and so I, I think I've proved myself to be quite good at it. Um, yeah, Boatman, I think, played really well today. He had me on my back foot on defense in places that I did not think I would be more than a lot of opponents I've faced before here have. Um, the moment that Oscars debate started, Boatman pushed me into a corner and then just started like, stomach punching me and i could not get out of it absolutely whatsoever um and then uh yeah i was able to to pull it back um yeah i feel good i three faces of eve is a very mediocre film and bowman absolutely has the more correct pick having not seen the movie um and deserved that point um yeah i i it was good I'm excited to see what maybe Cody looks like because that's going to be something. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, figure it out what it's going to be. We're doing it soon because you're playing Cody at Mayhem at the Multiplex 6. Um, and I'm excited. I think it's going to be this crew. I would imagine it's going to be this crew, me, Brian, and Mark. Um, it might be me, Brian, and Kirk. We'll see what happens. Um, but I can pretty much guarantee it's going to be me and Brian. Uh, and I, I'm pretty excited for it. I think you and Cody is a very interesting debate. Cody has a very interesting uh, type and style of debate and you do as well and you've you've gotten close um to this before but you have a contender match i believe what's that this is my third debate contender match i believe and i finally won third i know i know it's the at least the second i didn't know i think i think or i I might be wrong about that Um, i think it's the second you played rue and now you're and then you played boatman but um, oh no maybe robert was to get to a contender you're right Yes, um, but I am very excited because I think that it's shaping up to be a very exciting debate. Cody is someone who, you know, preps a lot, very pumped. You are someone who preps a lot, and Cody has been off a bit um, in since his debate against uh, his last debate against Kirk. You are going to be his first shot at a defense. Um Thoughts on that? Do you think you can take it from Cody? I think I can try, and I will say no more than that for fear of the wrath of the man himself. Fair enough. Well, Cameron, I look forward to it. Thank you for being a part of this. We will see you very soon at Mayhem at the Multiplex 6, and we will get final thoughts, starting with Mark. Uh, Yeah, uh, this was a very interesting match to sit in on, just because... uh, Feel like pretty much every question that was posed today was something that, uh, like, I know nothing about. Like, classic, the classic acting Oscar one. It was a really fun one to, to sit in on. Didn't know either of those movies existed. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I guess the, the these are good for me, whatever. But no, this was a this was a really fun match. Um, definitely looking forward to whatever Holzman has uh, for Cody. And I guess uh, Brian can go. Yeah, move, move it over to Brian. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, th- this was good. I mean, it, it's uh, one of those ones that actually was was pretty close. Every I, I think that there was only maybe one of them that I thought was like a, a landslide victory. Um, but they did a good job. Uh, Bowman can finally get that, you know, rest from debate since, you know, he didn't even want to be in this in the first place. But, I mean, he's still, he's still good at it. He still puts forth the effort and has gotten this far, the contender match. Um, but Holzman just came prepared. He came super prepared, and I thought he did a great job. Uh, as far as the uh, the match against Cody, uh, it's going to be interesting because it's very two very different approaches. Cody is going to try to you know berate Holzman and make him cry, and Holzman is pretty much going to make uh, Cody pull his hair out, just being frustrated and annoyed. So there you go. What little hair Cody has? No, I'm just, <laughs> I, I can't comment on that. I'll leave my Cody. Head on. Oh my god, I love you, and I love you, Holtzman. You, this is going to be great. Um, I'm so pumped. We have been waiting for this next title match. The last one aired in February. We have been waiting for this, and I am so pumped that we're finally getting there. It is going to be Cody Newberry versus Cameron Holtzman. Cannot wait uh, to open up mayhem at the multiplex. So. Thank you to Cameron and Boatman for debating today. Thank you to Mark and Brian for being the judges. Thank you to Kirk for being ready to judge, but then not needing to be here because I was here. Uh, So thank you. Thank you, Kirk. And uh, we will see you guys next time at Mayhem at the Multiplex. Until then, have a good one. Bye-bye. There we go.
Thank you very much. Please come again. We have a lot more groceries.